Heavenly Father, we thank you that in all the changing scenes of life, in trouble and in joy, we can still find ample reason to come to you, to praise you, and to thank you for blessings past, present, and future. We thank you for the scriptures that testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that by and through your Holy Spirit, the great physician, the great healer of souls, would be present with us to bless us tonight. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thanks to our talented quintet. One, two, three, four, yes. Um, delicious harmonies, and it really suited the cello, didn't it? Sometimes the problem is with the landlord. The flat is in an absolute tip, and you've been trying to contact him or her for days, weeks, months. No response. Everything becomes more and more dirty and unsafe and uninhabitable. Sometimes the problem with the boyfriend or the girlfriend. Messages are sent, doors are knocked upon, bunches of flowers are proffered, but no response. He or she is always unavailable, always out, not even responding to messages. Sometimes the problem is with a parent who has gone missing, like the uh, young woman I know who's father left the home, the family, when she was six, and in her teenage years she was saying, well, I text him, he never replies. But this evening, the problem is with God. God has gone AWOL. God has gone missing. And we don't know when he's ever going to show up again. Um, if you would like to turn or remain uh, open, uh, open at that passage in your, in your Bible, well, I will be putting the text up on the screen as well, so you can have either or both, as far as I'm concerned. But um, Psalm 13 is found on page four, five, 548 and 549 in the church Bibles, if you would like to follow it there. And um, read it along with me as we go through this short but perfectly formed psalm. It's in, well, in our English version, in six verses, two verses, uh, three sections, two verses each. Um, and it comes a long, long way in those six short verses, believe me. Well, just wait and find out if you haven't noticed it already from uh, Carol's reading. But it begins with protest in the first two verses. How long, O oh Lord? And of course, it's not an inquiry. I mean, give me a date. Give me a time. It's a complaint. It's gone on too long, far too long already, Lord. And you're just not responding. You're just not showing up. You're not answering my prayers. How much longer must I wait for you? I'm fed up with it. I'm tired of waiting. 
If you glance at the two verses as a whole, you will see, I think, three focuses, foci of complaint. Taking them for the moment in reverse order, thirdly, <laughs> um, the psalmist, it's written in David's name, uh, the psalmist uh, has a, a problem with his enemies. In other words, he's got a problem with his circumstances. You may not have many or even any enemies that are certainly not out to kill you, as Saul and Absalom were at different times in David's life. I mean, he had very real enemies and more besides as well. But certainly there will be circumstances that are really weighing down on you, on some of us anyway, of various kinds. It may indeed be people, uh, a vexatious neighbor, a demanding boss, a troublesome child or an equally troublesome parent, money worries, health worries for yourself or for others, a whole range of things in your circumstances may be troubling you. And so, towards the end, David is concerned about what's happening with his circumstances. In the middle there, he's got problems inside his own head. He is wrestling with his thoughts. Um, it may well be, for all I know, that his anxieties and his thoughts and his worries far outweigh the actual circumstances. Maybe you and maybe I, well, maybe you and certainly I, are given to a bit of overmuch worry. And we know what we tell ourselves. Other people, there's nothing really to worry so much about. But we still worry. And when we stop worrying, we start worrying about that. Well, I really should be worrying about something. <laughs> let, me, now let me have a, you know, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been there. You are there at the moment. And he's troubled um, uh, by his thoughts, what's going on inside his head, which is where so many of our problems lie, don't they? So thirdly, his circumstances. Secondly, his own thoughts and worries and anxieties. But firstly, and most prominently, his problem is with the God, with the Lord. How long? Will you forget me? Isn't it curious? Isn't it strange? That David, who thinks that God has forgotten him, actually hasn't forgotten God. A bit odd, isn't it? How long will you hide your face from me? These are powerful thoughts. It's a major complaint. And it's been going on a long, long time. He just doesn't know how much more of this he can take. He's at the end of his tether. So, having just taken in that threefold concern with you, God, with me and my worries and my, my head and my mind uh, and my anxieties, and them, the people who are after me, out to get me, I wonder how you feel about that. I wonder how you feel about that kind of feeling. As a Christian, as a professing Christian, how you feel about that, and um, how you feel about this kind of complaint towards God. Maybe there's folks here tonight um, who are happy with God all the time. 
And I wouldn't be surprised if there are folks here who say, look, my life isn't straightforward, it isn't easy, I have my problems and issues as much as, or perhaps even more so than any other people. I don't have a problem with God. I know of people like that, and that's, bless you, I'm not trying to come here this evening to upset you and make you worry about that God isn't as faithful as you know him to be. It's partly, I think, don't you think, a matter of disposition. It's as simple as that. We are constructed in different kinds of ways. I mentioned before, some of us are born warriors and others are not. Um, my parents' generation used to refer to a certain type of people as happy-go-lucky. Well, that's far too superficial a description of happy Christians, <laughs> happy-go-lucky. I don't mean that, but I do mean that there are Christians around who are happy constitutionally, happy with God, and thank God for them. Maybe that describes you, I don't know. There are others who really have never known God on intimate terms, and so therefore have nothing to complain about. God hasn't suddenly gone missing because, as far as you're concerned, he's always been missing. Either you've not been on speaking terms with God for many years, or you've never, ever been on speaking terms. You may be a professing Christian, but actually you don't know God in the way that Jesus prayed for and knew that people could and did come to know God. This is eternal life, he said, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. So I wonder if that describes uh, some of us here tonight, those who have never known, either for a long time or forever, this experience of God being with you, and so therefore you don't know what you're missing. Or perhaps you're, you, would, you would describe your, your experience in another kind of way. Maybe you feel, if you're honest with, with yourself, that you've become used to low expectations of God. You say your prayers, but you don't ask for very much, and you don't expect very much. Your Christian life bumps along the bottom, it limps along, without any great expectations of God doing anything um, at all dramatic, either in your life, or in his church, or in the world. In fact, if he did, it would rather frighten you. Or maybe you think that this kind of complaint against God is actually a bit disrespectful, a bit irreverent. How dare he speak to God like that? Imagine complaining to God that God has forgotten him. Well, let me remind you that David is described both in the Old and the New Testaments as a man after God's own heart. So let's take it as read that true believers in God, though even those who are men and women after God's own heart, do have experiences like this. Experience where God is, or at least seems, to have gone a long, long way away, and that seems not to be answering prayer, seems not to be there. There was uh, an English journalist and uh, author called Marganita Lasky, and she was an avowed atheist. She didn't believe in God at all. But she once said this remarkable thing. 
She said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. Very profound thought. But I always want to add to that and say, as an atheist, dear lady, not only do you have nobody to forgive you, you have nobody to thank, ultimately, nor, ultimately, do you have anybody to complain to you. The atheist can only shake his or her fist at nothing and say it's not fair. The believer can shake his or her fist and say, Lord, it's not fair. Huge difference. We have someone we can complain to. As I was reflecting on this psalm over the past uh, week, um, it occurred to me, and I read one or two people who said the same thing, that um, we don't have very many worship songs that explore this kind of experience. And I was apt to agree, and I might even have a little complained about that during, the, during my sermon tonight, until I was in contact with Sandra, and uh, Sandra had put into the order of service um, a song um, which I realized was based on this very psalm. And I said to Sandra by email, do you want the song by Brian Dirksen or do you want the song also based on Psalm 13 by Roberto Cacciapaglio? And she said, neither of those. I'd like the version by Barbara Woollett. There's three songs that I hadn't heard. Of. Well, actually, I have heard that one before. But there's three songs that I wasn't aware of, all on this not very well-known psalm. So worship uh, songwriters today are writing versions of, uh, 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 of psalms, and by all means, let's sing them. Not only the ones of praise, they're great, but also the ones which are more reflective and even lament and even complain against God, as that beautiful song did. And let's not forget, too, the experience of Jesus. I'm not going to say that Jesus complained to his father, but certainly he struggled Jesus, hanging on the cross, came up with these unspeakably <laughs> um, tragic, I suppose, incomprehensible and yet so profoundly true words for him and his experience. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet both for the psalm, David's words in the psalm, verses 1 and 2, as for Jesus hanging on the cross, quoting from another of the Psalms, Psalm 22, there, the beginnings of a solution is in the complaint. Because in both cases, David and the Lord Jesus are still speaking to God. They think that God isn't listening, but they haven't stopped speaking to God. David refers to God as my Lord, uh, oh, 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 oh Lord, using God's covenant name, God's, the, the personal name that God had given himself. And Jesus refers, again, as I say, drawing on Psalm 22, my God, my God. There is just that little tiny um, vein of, of, of faith for both of them that they are appealing to and getting them back to God, to speak to God. And also there is the, um, the, the seed of a solution, even in the first two verses of the psalm, in the fact that the complaint is uttered in the first place. Both David and the Lord Jesus have high expectations of the Heavenly Father. 
They know to expect something more, something better, something different than they experienced at the time. And for us to say, with our, with our, 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 our creaturely ignorance, Lord, you can do better than this, <laughs> you know, has its place. But we come, as we had the hint of in verses 1 and 2, we come now to a more focused prayer in verses, two, uh, verses 3 and 4. Now, I think that our New International Version is being slightly uh, polite when it uh, translates, look on me. I tend to, when I look at that, I rather think that David is saying, look at me. You know, like a parent, we have, um, uh, well, two little granddaughters, Many of you know that because we keep talking about them. Um, the older one is, 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 two, is two and a half. And her dad, who can't always catch her attention, will say, now, Thea, will you do this? No response from Thea. Thea, I'm talking to you. Will you do this? Thea, look at me. Get her to turn around, look him in the face, and then he's got her attention. Really what David's saying here, look at me. <laughs> turn your face towards me. Don't hide away from me. Don't turn your back on me. Again, it's pretty bold. It's pretty forthright. It's great, isn't it? Give light to my eyes or I'll sleep in death. I don't know whether David's talking about literal death or metaphorical death. It kind of doesn't matter. He feels at the end of his tether. Lord, you must help me. I can't take any more. And surely, Lord, you don't want my enemy and yours to say they have triumphed over me, do you? So a simple question for us arising from these middle verses of the psalm is, well, do we pray? Do we pray when things are going well and we're full of thankfulness and and so on? And do we pray equally when things we feel are not going well? Do we pray? There are various uh, various ways in various countries around the world, I I think, in which uh, a person might find out Uh, ask a question to find out whether another person who they don't know, haven't met before, is a believer. Um, Some people might sort of say, are you born again? Other people might say, do you you read read the Bible? Other people might say, do you go to church? In some cultures, the question is, do you pray? Because a distinguishing mark of a child of God, that that the child of God will pray. And we think to ourselves, well, I'm not very eloquent. I'm not very knowledgeable. I often don't know what to pray about. Let me give you some reassuring words from one of our um, Puritan writers. His name is Thomas Brooks. Uh, Speaking about our prayers, uh, Thomas Brooks says this, God looks not at the elegancy of your prayers, to see how neat they are, nor yet at the geometry of your prayers, to see how long they are, nor yet at the arithmetic of your prayers, to see how many they are, nor yet at the music of your prayer, nor at the sweetness of your voice, nor yet at the logic of your prayers, but at the sincerity of your prayers, how hearty they are. If you can put your heart into your approach to God, then you are praying in a way that God loves to hear and loves to answer. Prayer is essence, simply your heart turning towards God. And that's it. Do we have an example in Jesus? Yes. 
at this time of great extremity. And I'm in two minds as to whether Jesus' most terrible suffering was on the cross with that cry of dereliction or just before that in the Garden of Gethsemane when he asked his heavenly father to take the cup, the cup of God's wrath away. And yet not my will, but your will, he says to his father. And he accepts his, his father's and his own destiny. And the book of Hebrews refers back to that experience in the Garden of Gethsemane and says Jesus offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard. Saved from death? Well, saved out of death, wasn't he, by his resurrection. Let us, by all means, protest to God if that's how we feel, but let us by all means pray to God and bring our concerns to him. And then let, let that lead us, thirdly and finally, to praise. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. There's one or two scholars here, so I better explain my meddling with the text here. You see, I've turned um, my heart rejoices in your salvation to my heart will rejoice in your salvation. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I know no Hebrew. I only know two words of Greek, and that's donor and kebab. <laughs> but I have looked it up. And it's, not, it's not a huge point. It just... I just know that most, uh, many, most Bible trans English Bible translations, I've listed them there, have the future tense. That just kind of appeals to me, since that appears to be the case. That he, what he's doing in these two verses, looking back and looking forward. And as he looks back, it gives him confidence to look forward. I think that's great. If we feel empty of God at the moment, we look back and we look forward. What God has done in the past for us and for people like us is the guarantee and the promise of what he will do in the future. Question. Do you ever feel like giving up? I mean, this is the kind of psalm that prompts that question, isn't it? Do you ever feel like uh, giving up? Two women, Rebecca Benich and Sheridan Voicey, were having a conversation I wasn't cheating in overhearing that because it was a conversation on the radio. Um, but Rebecca Benich had been grown up in a Christian home. Uh, she had uh, been to two Bible colleges. She had taught in Sunday school and been out, served out in the mission field. And she had deconverted from Christianity. Uh, I think the current uh, expression is deconstruction of your Christian faith. Sheridan Voicey, who was and remains um, a faithful believer in, in Christ, asked what I think was a very searching question. So Sheridan, the believer, asked Rebecca, the ex-believer, where did Jesus disappoint you? I think that's a profound and very helpful question. Uh, where did Jesus disappoint you? What do you find, if you are doubting your Christian faith this evening, in what way is Jesus a disappointment to you? And I think your answer would be, actually, <laughs> he's not a disappointment to me. I have issues and problems that need sorting out. But no, Jesus is not a disappointment to me. So let's look 
at Jesus' uh, achievement. Uh, I'll give you the whole um, couple of verses from Hebrews chapter 12, which says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, that terrible suffering, scorning it shame, shameful suffering, not just physical suffering, shameful suffering, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. God vindicated him in the end. Consider him, goes on the writer to the Hebrews, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When I was a teenager, um, first became a Christian, we used to sing a chorus, maybe some of you know this, when the road is rough and steep, fix your eyes on Jesus. It's a great truth. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things, all things that is, that is to say that we really need, that God knows that we really need along with him. He's given us the ultimate gift. God will give us along with the ultimate gift all the other things that he knows in his wisdom we really need. Or as we sing in that great hymn, grace has brought us safe thus far, and, safe, uh, and grace, God's grace will lead us home. Three very brief thoughts to, to finish with. God himself never changes, always faithful. God does sometimes change our circumstances, not always, but sometimes. But God always changes us if we ask him. And the change may feel a bit scary in anticipation is always for our good and for his glory. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your birth, your life, your suffering, your death, your glorious resurrection from the dead, your ascension, and your current work interceding in heaven on behalf of your strugg sometimes struggling and sometimes suffering saints, having poured out the Holy Spirit, who to, is to be another advocate, another counselor, another helper with us, here with us on earth today. May we drink of all your good things and not for a moment say that we are ever disappointed in you. But when we learn and grow more and more into that knowledge and that love of you, which is so ultimately and finally and eternally satisfying. Amen. We're going to continue in prayer as Janet leads us. Thank you, Janet.